There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Footy Pride. Let's meet today's contestants. A DJ from Notting Hill, England, Danny Dicchio. A former football star from Park Royal, England, Jason Roberts. And our returning champion, a vape enthusiast from Coquitlam, B.C., Greg Forrest, whose one-game record for goals scored against is nine. And now, here's the host of Footy Prime, James Sharman. It really is the slickest podcast you will have the pleasure of listening to. It's Buddy Brown, the podcast. We haven't been sitting here for the last half an hour trying to figure out this fucking thing, have we? But still, here we are, set to go. James Sherman, Craig Forrest, Danny Dicchio. Hello, fellas. Hello, hello. Hello. Big show today. You've been promising us for months to get Jason Roberts on the show, Leach, and, and we finally get him. One of my favorite uh, strike partners, yes. Not only because... We liked playing alongside each other, but we also had a similar hatred for a certain head coach manager at the time of playing for West Brom. Did, did his name <laughs> rhyme with Schmegson? No comment. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll tell you what. Maybe it was because you guys didn't score any goals. Ah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we were playing with no midfield and a back four as well. I'll so. tell you what, it's a pretty formidable strike deal, though, isn't it? Eh? Roberts and Dickio. Yeah. I bet it was very direct. Yeah, you think? Did you guys play very direct? We didn't touch the ball actually playing for West Brom. We just no. <laughs> just yeah, used to knock it up, a yeah, yeah, and run around a bit, look busy. Well, let's bring Jason into the show. Former Wolves, West Brom, as mentioned there, Wigan, Blackburn, and currently living in Miami. Concacaf's director of development, Jason Roberts. Welcome to Footy Prime. Thanks, James. Great to be on with you. Nice to speak to you, Craig Beach. Always a pleasure, my friend. Good having you on, Jay. Listen, I just want you to explain to, to listeners and viewers, because we're on live as well, just just what your role uh, at CONCACAF is about as well, because there's lots of different um, positions at CONCACAF, and there's a lot of different teams, a lot of different uh, even regions. So just just give us a, a brief outlook of what you're doing. Uh, thanks, Deech. Uh Well, obviously, I played, as I'm sure we'll mention later on, I played a majority of my career in uh, in the Premier League and it was one of my one of the best parts of my career was playing up front with you Deech but uh, not many people will know I played for Grenada uh, international football from the age of 19 so this CONCACAF region was always really important to me 
Uh, and when I retired, I moved back to the Caribbean. And two years ago, I joined CONCACAF as a director of development. Of course, our role is to develop and promote football in the 41 member associations this side of the world, North America, Central America, and the Caribbean. And my role is specifically around the technical development of the confederation, all of the professional football developments, as well as women's football, and across CSR, which is really football for social change. How do we use football to really change communities and engage with our countries to ensure that football is more than just who wins and lose and who wins and loses. So, uh, you know, across those different pillars, we talk about technical development. That's about coaching education and how we can develop a world-class coaching pathway for coaches throughout our region. Uh, professional football is how do we use the professional game to improve things, whether that's through benchmarking or club licensing. And of course, we have Karina LeBlanc, someone I'm sure all of your listeners will know, uh, ex-goalkeeper for Canada. She's our head of women's football, so I work very closely with her. And across CSR, we have a program called Next Play, which is in several of our countries, which works with schools, which works with each of our associations to promote access to the game and, and all the benefits of playing our wonderful sport. So it's been a fantastic journey since I've joined CONCACAF and uh, you know, more exciting things to be done with our competitions and what we're what we're aiming to do with the World Cup going to be coming to our region soon. Jason, and how difficult it is and challenging is it for you to, because with 41 nations, different languages, different cultures, different ideas, how difficult has that been for you to work with all these different uh, countries? Great. I think it is a, a challenge. Obviously, the reality is different in every single country. You know, the Caribbean people would say, you know, are there much differences between Trinidad, Jamaica or Grenada? It's huge, vast differences culturally. And then, of course, you go to Central America and you go to North America. Um, the regions are very different. The countries are very different. But I think uh, we find ourselves in a unique situation at CONCACAF that we have an opportunity to do so many exciting things. Uh, I think historically, uh, we, we found that uh, development has been different in every single country, very much in the Caribbean. The development of coaches hasn't really um, been focused on. So one of the main parts of my job is to make sure that we have a coaching pathway, which is for all of the CONCACAF region. We only have eight countries, Canada being included, which has a pathway for coaches where you can you can learn and develop and go through the, the respective um, curriculums. But for majority of our countries, we don't have that. So building that, working with our countries to make sure that, that there's opportunities for coaches is something that gets me up in the morning. Of course, the competitions, and you know, I know you've had our president, Victor Montaliani, on recently, uh, and I'm sure he would have spoke to you about uh, the development of our Gold Cup going from 12 to 16, of our Nations League, which means that we have more games uh, for each of our countries. We're the only we're the only confederation with a U15 tournament where we centralise that and bring the best U15s uh, of boys and girls across to to play against each other. And I think that we're finding innovative ways to develop the game in our region because it's different everywhere. Obviously, playing in Europe, as I did with Beach in in the UEFA region, some of the challenges they have there are very different to what we have. So uh, I'm excited about what we've been able to do since uh, since Victor's come on and become become the president. And his one CONCACAF vision, vision is really about how do we develop together to make sure it's not just about the elite, that everybody is finding areas to improve. 
I know you're working with Karina uh, regularly, LeBlanc, and uh, she's obviously been brought in to help the women's game. Now, there's obviously differences there too, obviously, in the challenges for her in the women's game and the development there has been way behind, although it is fast growing. How is she doing in their, in her new role? Uh, Karina's doing fantastic. Anybody knows her knows she's a force of nature. She's not somebody who, who has the capacity to sit on her hands. She wants to work and you know, you mentioned there, Craig, we have an interesting dynamic in our region in that we have, you know, USA, Canada, two of the best teams in the world developing uh, Mexico. But then in some of our countries, we, we there isn't really a lot of women's football being played. So Karina has a really, uh, a really important role in making sure that we can challenge some of the stereotypes that exist across the whole region. Uh, we launched our strategic plan uh, at the Women's World Cup in France. And a lot of that is about addressing those coaching pathways, which is not just in women's football, but across the board, which is why we're working so closely, women's football and, de- and development department. Uh, but she's finding new ways to engage that cohort of coaches and administrators and people who are going to be uh, at the cutting edge of developing football and also making sure that some of our MAs take a more strategic look at what they're doing. Because if we're not getting the young girls playing the sport, if we don't have avenues and pathways for them to develop, if we don't have these U15 tournaments, which I spoke about earlier, then we're not going to see sustained development alongside the world-class countries that we have in our region. Jason, when Victor arrived, a big part of his job was to clean up a mess down in that region. Um, in the three years that you've been there, have you seen real progress moving forward uh, from CONCACAF? Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's something um, Victor spoke about directly when he spoke about his one CONCACAF vision, where he wanted this to be a football-first confederation. Now, that sounds like a nice strut line, but in reality, what that means is that we are currently working on coaching education. We are the only ones that have a U15 tournament. Alongside UEFA, we are the only confederation which has a nation's league. And all of these things means that we're back talking about football. We're back talking about the development of football. Uh, What we've been doing with our next play program, which is giving access to to thousands of kids and working with coaches across across the region, thousands of coaches actually, puts football central to the discussion. I think before it wasn't necessarily about football. There was other things happening. But now, uh, so just to give you a context, uh, having played for Grenada for over 10 years, I only have 12 international caps because there just genuinely wasn't enough football for me to play. There wasn't enough tournaments for me to leave my team in England to come and play. And now with the Nations League, there's hundreds of games going into the system. There's more teams playing in the Gold Cup. There's more opportunities for coaches. So I think that we can see we're moving in the right direction. We are ambitious, so we know there's lots more to do. But I think at the moment, when you talk about CONCACAF, you're talking about football and you're talking about the development of football. And of course, with the World Cup coming, uh, it's certainly an exciting time for everybody. Jay, just going back to what you said, where you're trying to centralise things as well. I just want to ask you, what's been, been your biggest stumbling block at the moment? And I'm sure in the Caribbean, just really focusing on that region, there's a lot of stubborn people and coaches thinking they know how to play the game. And we have that in Europe ourselves. We've had that here in Canada. Um, How do you go into countries that don't really have the resources, but also try to 
tell them that, listen, we, we want to improve you as a coach. We want to improve your system of play. We want to improve not your knowledge, but the way you teach things as well. And how do you get them to buy into that? You know, Deech, you, you, you've raised a point here, which is really personal to me, because I think the development of coaches is so important. And there was a time not too long ago uh, in Europe and in other more developed parts of the footballing world where coaching education wasn't valued. And it's only in the last 30, 40 years that we've seen coaching pathways and coaching education be put in place. We're currently going through that. Uh, so, it's, so as much as it is disappointing that we're talking about this in 2020, um, the fact is that it's an ongoing piece of work that will always be moving and shifting as, as um, the technical development of football grows. So, you know, what we've done is develop a CONCACAF li license, which not only has an E license, a B license, a C license, we have a pilot of a B license as well. But what we've had to do is work with each of our countries to say, how can we create coaching educators? Because, of course, we can create a content, but if we don't have the coaching educators to teach it, then you're not going to be able to, to get that required growth. So we've worked with each of our countries, so they have coaching educators. We've delivered a curriculum, and now we need to continue to work with them to build something world-class. But from the ground up, we can't just drop in something that's not relevant to the realities we have on the ground here. For instance, if you're in a place, uh, some of our countries, maybe in Central America or the Caribbean, how many balls will you have? How many cones will you have? How will you be able to interact with young people with the reality that they have? So I think we need to build something that's unique, that's world-class, uh, that is being able to be delivered in all of our 41 member associations and also working with the more elite countries, Canada, USA, Costa Rica, who have their own pathways and how can we create synergy between them so that we can move into the A license and the pro license. And that's something that we're currently doing with uh, our talks around the coaching convention for the CONCACAF region. So whilst it's a challenge, Deech, uh, I always have to keep in the front of my mind that this is something that everybody's had to go through. And that is whilst we're building that, we can also learn from what people have done right and what they've done wrong uh, in the past. So it's an exciting piece of work. I think it's a legacy piece of work, something that when I joined, um, Victor was really really focused on the fact that we needed to invest in our coaches and the, the development of football. So I think that long after I've gone, hopefully we'll have something which which can really uh, can really give our coaches and people who volunteer and want to be part of football a pathway to be as good as they can be in regards to coaching. Yeah, I love the word legacy. I think it's so important in what this can become. It's, it's so refreshing to hear there's a plan in place in CONCACAF now moving forward. Um, you, you talk about when you are finished and when you've retired. Like, what will that look like to you to be successful at that point? What does CONCACAF look like in, in 15, 20 years' time? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, when I go back to the coaching side, I think that's a real legacy piece of work. Uh, I think in our competitions, a uh, continued um, challenge to the status quo. We want as many good teams as possible. We've seen in the Gold Cup the, the likes of Haiti, the likes of Curacao. We've seen uh, Bermuda get to the Gold Cup for the first time in their history. We've seen uh, so many other teams, the likes of Montserrat improving. Um, and I think that comes from, again, the coaching education, again, access to more games, to, to the sport at a younger age. Uh, but beneath all of that, uh, of course, the growth of the women's game. But there's one other part which is really dear to me, which is how can we ensure that football is seen as a positive 
influence across our region because we have varying social economic issues. We have various um, challenges in the regions and in the countries. But how can we ensure that football is part of the solution? How can we ensure that football is reaching out to people, volunteers and coaches and, uh, and families and them wanting football to be a part of their young people's lives? And we've been doing a lot of work with safeguarding, actually. One of the first things we did was how can we ensure that as part of our coaching curriculum, that safeguarding is embedded into into that curriculum because again this is something that's not really spoke about as much as we would like in some of our regions so I think when we start talking about things like that it's bigger than football it's about how football can change people's lives and I know you know all of us on this call uh, we, on this on this podcast we know how much football has, has shaped our lives outside of just participating in the sport and I think if I can if I can leave CONCACAF having affected that and having more people uh, feel the benefits of our sport, then then I would we would have we would have achieved our goals. You you mentioned there social change, something you've been involved in throughout your career, both as a footballer and of course now you're living in Miami in 2020. A pandemic hits and then this incredible movement, BLM. How would you describe the last few months, Jason? I imagine you wouldn't have expected any of this to, to happen the way it has, but it's been uh, incredible. I think for all concerned, really. We lost Jason. Oh, you're muted, guys. Oh, can you hear me now, Jason? One second. Can you hear us now, Jason? Hello, hello. Is it chatting? No. It's muted on here. Oh. There we go. How's that, Jason? Can you hear us now? Uh, yeah, Sorry about that, mate. Sorry about that. Let me start that question again. Okay. Okay. Three, two. Question. Yeah. Three, two, one. Jason, you mentioned uh, social change, something you've been uh, involved in throughout your career uh, at, at diff different levels. 2020, living in Miami, um, I, I imagine you know it's taken us all by obviously surprise from the pandemic to the Black Lives Matter movement. How would you describe the last few months in, in Jason Roberts' world? Well, James, it's been it's been. Uh it's been difficult. I think you can't detach yourself from the hurt and the pain that that is that that everybody is feeling, whether it's economic, whether it's the fact that people's lives are being lost, uh, the fact that you know people aren't able to move freely, and and, and the the, uh, the challenges we'll have we've had as a as a wider global community. Um, but as as anything in life, you try to take something positive from it. The fact that you know I have been home means that I spent more time with my family. That you know we've had to encounter these things together. Um, you know we're all football people in this podcast, so you know how much time you spend away from your family. So having that chance to engage and be part of their schooling or whatever it may be has certainly been a benefit. But you know it is it is so sad to see some of the numbers of people who can contracting this 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 virus so many people have died of course there's social issues around black lives matter and the protests that we've had here in the u.s and i think it opens up a variety of of questions a variety of themes that uh it's necessary to discuss and whilst they are uncomfortable um again as sad as these these incidents have been and the, the incidents of, of police brutality and 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 uh and communities being disenfranchised, it, 
the opportunity is it, it gives us that space to have these very difficult discussions, ones that challenge many people's feelings, uh, many people who maybe haven't had to confront some of these questions, having to ask themselves how, how they're engaging with these issues in their day-to-day -day life. So again, uh, very unfortunate, very difficult, but if we can take something from it, it's the chance to engage as a community, chance to engage as people and try to find ways to make our, our world better. Now, let's talk about, you know, Jason, about potential significant change. For decades and decades, I mean, I moved to England in 1984 as a 16-year-old, saw the racism firsthand, how the players had to deal with it, how they were told just to shut up and keep going on. Uh, then we saw groups created, Kick It Out, which you were involved with as well. Um, but I don't see... I see a lot of chatter. I see a lot of groups. I see some support for them, but I don't see significant change. Am I wrong by saying that? Or why isn't, and why aren't we seeing more other than just people shouting and screaming about this, which is right? Craig, I think that we've gone through different eras of development where this is concerned. I think my, my uncle, Cyril Regis, one of the first uh, black players to play for England, play for West Bromwich Albion, uh, many years ago uh, obviously in his time the challenge was the over racism where you have bananas on the pitch he tells stories of being confronted in the streets and bullets through the post when he was picked for england and i think um it was a hard battle to move past that where those sorts of incidences were less um less seen but I think what happened was there was a little bit of complacency when we stopped having to confront these really visible signs of racism and prejudice. And we had to move into the more systemic issues, which is around employment, uh, whether it's around uh, opportunities uh, in coaching and management and administration. And I think that when we have a sport as we do, as multicultural as it is, um, that is such a meritocracy on the pitch uh, that we have really haven't got a handle on the fact that the pathway into coaching and management is virtually non-existent for players uh, from the black community. We've seen the same thing in administration. We've seen the same thing in football management. And again, uh, very much so what I said earlier on the Black Lives Matter movement, it really feels like it's a time to ask ourselves systemically, what are we going to do to readdress that? Either we're going to live with the, the status quo, which is which is that the numbers for black players who play the game at the highest level and those that have played at the lowest level are really not getting the same opportunities to go into um, further roles in the game, or we're going to challenge the system and whether that means ensuring that there are that there are interviews for those that are doing their specific badges, whether it's about creating those networks where the decision makers are having to actually sit across. Uh, in a room from from people who are who are trying to educate themselves and put themselves in that in that position and just try to challenge maybe some of those stereotypes that exist uh, that actually you know you can have somebody who is who is a black footballer but is also very thoughtful very measured very very strategic from the football side that could be used in coaching and management and I think it's something we need to challenge I hope that we will see some movement but you know we need to move away from these these visible campaigns, whether it's T-shirts or whether it's signposts or signs in, in, in the background, actually putting in challenging policies and procedures which improve a situation which cannot stand. It cannot be that we have 30% black players, black
black and ethnic minority players and we have less than 1% in coaching and management. Something is going badly wrong and we need to ask ourselves, what are we going to do to readdress this? Stay, staying along those lines as well, Jay, and I think you've seen what the NBA have been doing since they've returned to the bubble and I think they've made a, a fantastic stand. Yes, they've worn the T-shirts. Yes, there's the banners on the sideline. There's the virtual stuff going on as well. But I think what the players did last week in boycotting the two or three days of games, whether it be playoffs, until there was a discussion with the owners, with the people in the league to say, hey, we need some something where... It's an action that's going to be sustainable and something that's going to happen after this tournament is finished, after this season is finished. We don't want to just go back to square one like we saw for many years with Kick It Out in the Premier League in England where, yes, we all wanted to wear the T-shirts. Yes, we all wanted to progress. But at the end of the day, fuck all was done. Pardon my English. And I just... <laughs> no way. Or French. No, I'll, I'll certainly pardon your English. <laughs> I know how passionate you are. Beach, and I know that you've seen it, and you, you've grown up in a you've grown up in a multicultural community, and you've seen your friends, myself included, and other friends that you have in the UK, certainly have to struggle through these challenges that we have. But I think you know to speak to what happened in the NBA and what's been happening here in US sports is really a challenge to move away from just um, high visibility um, protests or high visibility. Uh, frameworks and move into policy and procedure. How do we ensure that the money that goes into communities are really are really affecting the challenges that the community are facing? How can you ensure that a, that a game that is, has such high representation from the black community is investing, reinvesting back into the into the community to ensure that the community as a whole is in a, is in a better place and therefore society is in a better place? This is a larger discussion than sport. There's no doubt of that, but you know, we've all seen the impact sport has on so many people. Coming out of COVID, uh, we've all been waiting for sport to come back to give us that relief from some of the challenges we've been facing in our lives. And that just shows the power of the athletes, the power of our sport and how we can really help to move things on and to, be- to develop things from a cultural perspective. And I think the players, the athletes understand their position. They understand that they're more than just the people who play the sport, they're icons, they're people who can affect things, they have influence. And I think it's so it's so refreshing to see that from across across the, the sporting community, whether it's black players, white players, uh, ethnic minority players, everyone together saying, yes, there's other challenges, but this is the specific challenge we're going to face currently, this challenge around our black communities, the challenges around um, under-representation uh, and... and and violence towards this community. This is something that we're going to focus on now, and I think it's absolutely important. And athletes have a much have such a big part to play, and it's fantastic to see that they that they recognize. It. Jason, you talked about the lack of opportunities and the percentages of coaches, black or minorities, to get into that. That is absolutely factual. Um, now you're a black man in a very high position in an, in a confederation in the world. What can you do? from a FIFA standpoint and CONCACAF standpoint to put more pressures on confederations, countries, and we've seen fines toward countries being chanting racial comments and stuff in the crowd, but it's not enough. It's a, 
what more can be done other than slap on the wrist fines that just don't seem to work and aren't doing enough in my mind? Uh, Craig, I think that this is a really important point, and it's a question that I know in a strange way I'll back back to you and to everybody else, which is what can we all do? I think the one thing that we've realized in this is that this is not a problem that's going to be solved by maybe asking the affected community, what are they going to do about it? Or even asking the affected community, what are the solutions you find? This has to be a solution where everybody is engaged and everybody is open to doing something different in their own behavior. So, of course, as a black man, as you said, Craig, in the position that I am, I need to ask myself, what am I doing in my function, in my role, to promote uh, to promote people opening their eyes a little bit, looking at a context of, of a sport which hasn't really engaged uh, our community or represented our community in the way that that is appropriate. But then also to ask everybody, what do you do in your function as an individual, black, white, whatever color you may be, man, woman, child, whatever it is, how can you educate yourself on these issues? How can you ask yourself some questions? How can you challenge your perceptions? How can you make sure that in your function, in your role, that you're doing it in a way which factors in some of these challenges which we're all which a majority of people are now more open to and i think that's the 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 important part about what's being done here is that it's not just about what can a black person in a specific role do about this it's what can we all do in our specific roles to make sure we're challenging this whether it's in the policies and procedures we put in place the decisions we make uh, how we look at racism and we've seen it across across the region uh, we've seen it across the, the world. How do we as a as a footballing family deal with those issues? I think all of those things, not only from uh, an institution perspective, uh, from a systemic perspective, and then from a personal standpoint, what are we going to do? So I, I would I would absolutely say that uh, I, I, I would hope that in the things that I've done as an individual, I've tried to challenge uh, these these issues. And I hope that anyone listening or certainly people who are in positions to influence things are asking themselves the same questions and bringing that into the decisions that they make. But certainly as a game, we need to, ha- we need to be firmer. We need to have a zero policy, zero tolerance policy. And I know that's something, that's a term that has been used, but I think that we really need to make sure that we, that, that we, that we put things in place that make sure should there be any racist incidents, we are having the harshest possible sentencing to make sure that people absolutely do not uh, consider that they could do these things again. Jason, uh, you mentioned the need of influential voices, and I think Raheem Sterling's become just that in, in English football. Maybe he's becoming the most socially important English sporting figure in, in at least generation, maybe maybe ever. And I, I don't think I'm, I'm speaking too loudly there. I think that's, that's the fact. Um, but you need more than just Reem Sterling. You know, I know Marcus Rashford's been fantastic from a social standpoint as well in, in recent months. Um, but we do need more footballers to stand up. Do you think they're in the game right now? Can Raheem Sterling encourage, influence other players to stand up? Yes, I, I think that um, we've seen, uh, and I think Raheem and Marcus have done incredible work. Marcus's work in, in, the, um, in the community with his, his, his social community work has been incredible. Uh, influencing government and influencing policy. I think what Raheem did was really shine a light on a very visible um, visible part of our 
media, in the way that we spoke about the game, in the way that we presented certain individuals. And he made, I think that if it's fair to say the media and the wider community really look at themselves and ask themselves if what he was portraying was fair, the way he was being positioned versus versus other people having having the same situation. So I think that was really important. I think what's happening now is that we do have players, uh, both black and white, asking themselves what can they do. And I think that what we've seen going on in the sporting world has even further uh, made that more relevant in regards to what can be done. How can we engage with with our clubs, with our stakeholders to ensure that they have this issue central to their thinking as well. So I think that it's certainly followed on from what we're seeing here in the US, which is the players understanding that they have an extremely important part, that they are a key stakeholder and that they should be uh, part of these discussions when we're talking about how do we address these challenges. Uh, Players or administrators or coaches or managers, I don't believe anyone is going to have the power themselves to do it. But players have an extremely important voice, and I was very relevant. I was very. Uh, I I knew as a player that I had an important position, um, and I have seen players really affect issues uh, by making themselves available, by being open to having uh, difficult discussions at times. And I've had to have them, and it's so amazing to see a new generation have it and bring their own their own flavour to it. And I think what we've seen with Raheem and Marcus are two leaders, uh, not only in our community, but two leaders in the sporting world who I think are going to go on to do even more important things as they as they move forward. Jay, so just going back years again, and we're going to speak about your uncle, who was a big hero of mine, Cyril, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. So let's let's bring back Cyril to present day, Okay. All what Cyril had to go through in the 70s, 80s, and we'll speak about the despicable stuff that was going on on the field. But as you were just mentioning there about Raheem and the, the kind of undercurrent of media snipes against black players, whether it be performance, whether it be just the basic look or profile. What do you think Cyril or even Laurie Cunningham, who was part of the great three as well, Brendan Batson, who's still alive, what do you think they would say in this present day now? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, thanks for, for um, really introducing my uncle in that way. We do miss him since he's passed. And, you know, it was great to be able to have him around because, you know, I know what he would say because I had the opportunity to speak to him. And he was, he, he, he was, he was so positive about the fact that what they have had to endure, uh, some of the challenges they face, the three degrees you mentioned at West Brom, Brendan Batson, Laurie Cunningham, Seal Regis, three young black players coming through and exciting people uh, through their style of play and turning people who maybe had never had any dealings with black people and never really considered them and thought about them. Suddenly, uh, they were on your TV every weekend and they were your favourite players and it made it challenged people's perceptions. And I think what he was keen was for us to continue to push the envelope, to continue to, to to drive forward that message and to challenge those perceptions. Because it was at first, you know, do black people play football? Then it's like, okay, they play football, but do they play in the cold? And then it's like, okay, they play in the cold, but can they play up north and all these different perceptions? And I think we continue to break down these barriers um, to we get to the point that that is not a surprise to see a black player playing football anywhere in the world. And it's not a surprise to see them play in winter or any other conditions. Uh, but now it is a surprise to see them coaching or managing. It 
is a surprise to see him at the top level of, of administration. Uh, and I think those are the things that we have to continue to challenge. Now, we can't challenge that on the pitch. You can't go on the pitch and score a hat-trick and show them how good you are. It's about a quality of opportunity. It's about getting the chance to show that you're a good, bad or indifferent manager or getting the chance to show that you're a good, bad or indifferent administrator. Uh, so it's about creating that quality of opportunity. Uh, how we do that is to challenge the key decision makers, to challenge their thought process and, and actually asking them, are they, are they looking at a wider, a wider net of recruits? Uh, I don't believe this is necessarily about a quota. I know many people have spoken about having quotas. It's not necessarily about that. But what it is, is about, as I mentioned, a quality of opportunity. If you're going to give uh, a job or and there are opportunities for hires, have you spoken to as many people as possible, maybe from outside of your, of your current thinking? And maybe you lead that discussion saying, okay, maybe he's not, he or she's not the right person for the job now, but maybe next time. Or maybe actually they challenged my thinking there. Maybe yeah, I, I didn't know that. And maybe then we'll find uh, some different choices being made. So it's about breaking down those barriers, Beach. It's about people having unfortunate and uncomfortable discussions with themselves, asking themselves, are they really trying to find the right person? Or is it about finding someone who feels right to me? All of these things have to be challenged. And that's a continuation of the work that started with bananas being thrown on the pitch and and racist songs. It's a continuation of challenging these prejudices and actually bringing, bringing our allies with us, people who understand these challenges. I mean, speaking to the likes of Craig, yourself, people who played the game who understand these challenges and making sure that all of us are doing what we can to challenge these stereotypes, which no doubt are affecting the opportunities for black players to progress in our game. Now, what, what would be the reason for when you talk about the statistics, it's just absolutely phenomenal against any black or minority why would they even be involved in getting involved in coaching in the first place like you're you're basically you're in a lottery because your opportunities are so small so craig you you really you've really highlighted that point which makes it a a nuanced discussion because at one point it becomes about inequality of opportunity those that are doing their badges and doing the required education not getting opportunity and then, of course, people see that and decide, well, that's not for us, so I won't do my badges. I won't invest in myself. I won't put myself forward for these roles and these opportunities. And then it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cycle then, which continues. So we need to address that. Uh, and it's my view that the first step towards doing that is ensuring people that there are opportunities, that there are. this isn't about closed networks, that it's about actually the best person for the job. And I think once we can show... That we have that we have addressed that, then you'll see more people uh, from the community then going and doing their education and doing their coaching uh, and, and their and their, their development. Um, of course, those things got have got to go hand in hand, and we do have a large number of people who've done their badges uh, because they want to be involved. People have educated themselves, like myself, to be involved in administration. But we need to attack those from a very genuine place of understanding that historically there hasn't been opportunity. So people have been put off. Let's put some of their, their fears at rest by putting policies and procedures in place. And then let's ensure that we can give them pathways to develop. And I think it is a multifaceted issue. One that is going to take a real engagement 
of the community, a real engagement with the stakeholders, those who are making the decisions, as well as those who are on the outside looking in. And it'll take a lot of time. It will. I mean, every, every season we see white managers fail, right? And then they get rehired by another club and they fail, fail, fail. If, if you see a, a black manager get hired tomorrow, a faction of the fan base say, oh, he, he got it because he's black now. You know, yeah. that, that's what a faction of the fan base will think is unfair. Will, will it take a, a, a successful black manager, sadly, to, to convince these people that, oh, okay, it's time? Well, even before that, it, it was great. On my on my UEFA license, going back to England last year, three of my assessors were, were ex-players, black players, from different levels as well. Paul Davis from Arsenal, who is a guy that I loved watching when I was younger. Ife Anyora, uh, I don't know if you know him, Jay. A really big target striker, fantastic guy. Really probably one of my favorite assessors on, on the course. And when I looked around the room, there was probably out of 100 people taking the actual license, I would say there was five people from ethnic minorities or or black players that used to play taking the course. So I think the FA are doing a really good job. It's a little too late in my opinion, but they're starting to bring in coaches to either assist or to take the younger groups now within the FA setup. I know that uh, Chris Powell's now part of the England staff, um, they're starting to bring in some ex-players that, that played in and around mine and Jay's time that are helping with the under-18s, under-19s, under-20s. So it's not only from a look from the outside for people that want to coach or hopefully get into the industry. It's also for the younger players to see and be comfortable with, yes, it's not predominantly white, the coaching staff now. I might not be comfortable speaking to that weird white dude who's got bald head and glasses like myself and a dodgy beard. I might feel more comfortable speaking to the black coach just because that's how I've grown up. That's what I'm used to. So I have to give a lot of credit to the FA for for changing that, but there's still so much more to be done. John, I just want to take you up on that point. Um, I I think you're right. There is no doubt that, um, you know, the more successful it changes perceptions. Uh, But I think, you know, we've seen Chris Hewitt has had a long and and, and successful career. The likes of Frank Reichard, uh, the highest level, Jean Tagana. Um, So we have seen that. And I think, uh, I think, unfortunately, it's going to take a lot more, a lot more than that. Uh, I think that, you know, we'll be in that place when you can have a manager who's maybe had a varied time as you mentioned earlier, but has got a job after opportunity, after opportunity and opportunity, having been decidedly average. And I think maybe that happens. Then you say, okay, we really are going in a strange way in, in, in the right in the right direction. Yeah. But I think there's also a business case about this as well. And Deitch has really uh, highlighted that in that I remember making my way from inner city, Northwest London, into my first team at Hayes. It's the first time I'd been around the types of people who were in my dressing room. And I, the hardest thing to me, for me to, to uh, the, the ability was there, the desire to play the football was there, but culturally it was very difficult for me to fit in. I came from a, a, a predominantly Caribbean neighborhood into a, a, a team of predominantly English, uh, ex-pros, builders, laborers, these kind of, and I'd never encountered or been in a room as the only black person alongside alongside this sort of composition. So that was a cultural challenge for me. And they were all great people. They took me under their wing. But the reality was 
that was a cultural um, challenge for me. And I think there is there is that side that, you know, when you're from a certain background and you're dealing with someone who understands some of the unique challenges you're going through, it can only help you. And I think if you look through the development of football, you look at Canada, uh, some of the young, great young players who you have coming through, Alfonso Davies, uh, et cetera, all the good players, Jonathan David, et cetera, that you have coming through. Certainly in the UK, you mentioned Raheem Sterling, who's born in Jamaica, but a lot of the young players coming through, that there is that as well. So I think there's a business case to that as well, trying to make people comfortable and trying to help them to acclimatise to a new to a new reality for them. And there's also the diversity of thoughts, getting pe- different people around the table. So I think that there's so many different opportunities from you know academy coaches, academy directors and technical directors and, and managers and coaches, etc. that, you know, having that diversity of thought is important for your organization. It's not to do anything nice because you want to ensure there's more diversity. No, it's going to help you to be better. And I think that's something that needs to be um, to, to be articulated better. But I think that there really is um, so many, so many things that can be done around addressing the closed networks that we find in football and really having people who are decision makers have discussions with people that they may or may not have considered and really challenging the uh, the decisions that they make. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. It's been uh, just enlightening and we'll get you back on at some point, I hope. Uh, before you go, though, we're almost out of time here. Our, our Zoom window is closing, so we've got about a minute here to make fun of Beach. Um, you obviously <laughs> grew up... <laughs> You grew up playing. A minute, with just beach. a minute. That's good. As kids, you played together. You know, you knew what it was all about. So, how surprised were you when you looked over at West Brom and saw your new strike partner? Uh, I wasn't surprised at all. I, you know, growing up, Deech played for QPR. That was one of my local club, actually. So, I always knew who he was. He had a dodgy ponytail back in the day. Anyone who wants to look it up, please do. Scorer of spectacular goals. I was really excited when he came because I knew he was from around my my area and. We just became best friends um, straight away. Uh, we actually, I, we actually used to go to training together because we rented. Uh, I don't. I hope he doesn't mind me saying we rented and we lived in the same um, house. Uh, everything was fine. Uh, he used to cook, which was great, but he used to sweat a lot in the pasta. That's a whole other. That's a whole other thing. It's because uh, he put he the Scotch bonnet peppers in there. I'm, I'm not going to uh, go into too much detail, but. One of the best pros I ever worked with is someone who uh, remains a dear friend to me now. And, you know, I'm, I'm just so happy that he's in, still involved in the game, giving back to people because he's a, he, he's a really important um, football man, certainly in the neighbourhoods we grew up in. And it's just amazing that he's gone to Canada and, and, and made such an impact. That Isn't he it? tells me that he scored the first goal in TFC's history and they sing his name for 15 minutes every game. Sounds <laughs> about right because, uh, you know, he is, he, he's a great man and I'm just glad that he's, he's still found a way to give back to the game. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Jason, uh, we, we hate giving Deech credit, but every now and again, we'll allow it. So, well done. Thanks so much. Uh, Thanks, we Jay. really enjoyed this. We'll, we'll get back on real soon and keep doing the good work you're doing in CONCACAF. Mm. Thanks, Jay. I really appreciate it. Your uncle will be very proud of you, buddy. Thank you, Craig. Really appreciate that. That's Thanks, Jason James. Roberts. Thanks, Deech. Thank you. Jason Roberts, uh, that was a great chat. You know, And it's funny, you talk about, especially in this region, the game's development, and you hear about Victor Montagliani, you see that the big names you know, who are out there in the media, knowing that people like Jason are kind of behind the scenes doing the good work is really encouraging. 
Yeah, because we don't see a lot of it, what was going on behind the scenes too and the changes that are happening at CONCACAF. We're aware of it because of our relationship with, with Victor, but it's a different world now compared to what it was. And uh, that's only good things, and they've got really good people in there that we personally know, which is even better. Moving in the right direction. It's yeah. taking baby steps, small time even from when Craig played, won the, the Gold Cup with Canada. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of change, and it's not just with players, but as Jay spoke about it there, it's with the, the development of coaching, the resources that federations are now putting into their their teams, whether it be at youth level, whether it be on the women's side of things, whether it be in administration, giving people more opportunities to work in the game, which is great for us all who've been involved with the game for a long, long time. Speaking of opportunities and Canadians, uh, Kadisha Buchanan. Yep. Female player for our national team, winning our fourth European Champions League. That's incredible. Fourth. That that club is that women's club. That they are dying. Fourteen leagues titles in a row. And as European um, club football's getting much bigger on the women's side, the English league's getting far bigger, attracting a lot of big names from, from yeah, North America. Better better quality. Uh, yeah. still got a long way to go because we saw in the semi final I think the team from Glasgow got absolutely spanked. So, one. <laughs> yeah, so the depth isn't uh, isn't quite there yet, but uh, at the very top end, and to make a team uh, like Lyon for Kadisha Buchanan, you got to be the best of the best. And just having uh, you know within a couple of weeks, two Canadians not just start but win Champions League finals. Mm. We're doing something right, okay? Uh, obviously, the, we're not there yet. There's a lot of challenges and. Yeah, a lot of agendas mm-hmm. in, in this country, as far as football's concerned, but clearly something's being done, right? Because well, we're producing some good players. What would would it be possible that the likes of Alfonso Davies gets lost in the shuffle, like so many other Canadian players, if we didn't have Edmonton, we didn't have Vancouver Whitecaps residency day, right? I mean that it could it would be possible that he just fades out of the game and nothing actually happens. So that alone. Is a is a big big thing. Although we've only got three so MLS teams and all of these CPL teams is obviously a massive uh, development uh, push by the CSA and by group. So that's all good to see. You enjoying the Island Games, Deech, as a, from a coaching standpoint, from from you know seeing young players develop in this country. Many that you a lot know, of drama, a lot of theatre. Most of the, players, most <laughs> yeah. of the guys you coached actually. You know what? It's yeah, been coached from the failure. <laughs> it's been really intriguing because. I think everyone at the beginning thought it was going to be probably a two-horse race to get to that first and second spot, and then it was a race for third and fourth to see who could join in Forge and Cavalry. But over the last week or so, there's been some really, really good results for York are putting a good uh, performance against Forge and got mm-hmm. the win. Um, and then Halifax battle to a 1-1 draw on the yesterday. weekend. Pacific the yesterday, their coach is doing a great job. Um yeah, car. Yeah, so I'm just I'm, way, I'm excited to I, see I, I it. Watching Halifax do so well, I'm thinking back to our interview with Stephen Hart, and he was saying, oh, "I'm just kind of seeing this as just a preseason for next year." So full of shit. <laughs> he was just trying, he was jumping know, up and down the other day. Yeah, how excited he was when they got that draw. I mean, yeah. to be fair, this team down a man for 60 minutes showed good character and really dug in. And uh, chatted to him or text with him after the game, and he was like, "You know, it's just it, I mentioned it though. It's like." Even when you only have 10, you know you're going to get a chance. chance. You're going to get a chance. And set pieces. York just kept giving away fouls around the edge of the box, and then they end up paying. Yeah. Jimmy Jimmy wasn't happy. (laughs) Because that's the second goal they've conceded in the, like, 
after the ninety, after the ninety, or extra time. giving up two so early set, to Ottawa that they battle yeah. back to two two. Yeah, set pieces. So one of his players weren't ready, didn't have their socks on. Yeah, still unbeaten. You gotta give him credit. He was complaining post match about one of his players weren't ready to come on as a sub because he forgot his socks. Oh no, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably. Well, I never understood that, by the way. Watching games, right? Yeah. Premier League games, and, and you see the guy in the stands. He's not ready. Hustling to get his I socks hate on it. Shim pads on. Yeah. What does that tell? What I kind of it. message does that send a coach? But it's even guys like, and it's, it's so apparent now, a fella that is still pissed with not being in the starting lineup when, you, when you're kind of told by the coach to go and get warmed up, and you just see him laboring up, giving it the old Billy big time. But he's got. His boots unlaced, socks down to his ankles. He hasn't got his shirt on, his jersey on, yeah. shorts. He's still got to do his makeup. He's still got to do his hair. <laughs> Take his earrings out like, already. It's a ten minute. It's yeah. a ten minute period before he's even yeah. able to come. I'll tell you a quick story ready. about John Hart, Johnny Hartson. He was injured, coming off injury. He's going to sit on the bench, oh, and he said oh. to Harry Redknapp, "He says I'll, uh, I'll sit on the bench, but you got to give me more than fifteen minutes." If you give me more than 15 minutes, you promise me that I'll sit on the bench. I'm quite happy. Well, 15 minutes comes and goes. John gets up. He walks back into the shower, <laughs> into the dressing room. I'm on the bench. And next to Harry with five minutes left, he's like, where's John? He's looking down. Is he warming up down the touch lines? Where is he? He looks around. And he goes, hey, Craig, where's John? I said, I think he went down the tunnel toward the dressing room. Well, fucking go get him. So I go in there in the dressing room, and he's in the shower. John's in the shower. <laughs> Lathering up. Lathering up. And I go, John, Harry wants to fucking put you on. And he goes, you can tell Harry to go fuck off. (laughs) I said, yeah, sure. That's what I'm going to tell Harry. So I go back out there and he's like, where is John? I said, Harry, he's in in the shower. He's in the fucking what? (laughs) We're down to 10 minutes. He's in the shower. Johnny, big Johnny. This is coming from the, the, the backup goalkeeper. To Shaka Hislop, who, who had to come on because Shaka did a hamstring or something and was so hungover, he was trying to convince yeah. him not to go out. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Still got the that's win. True. No, it didn't. Oh, you didn't? No. You were seeing four you balls? Know, he scored, <laughs> yeah, it was Johnny you know, Donny uh, Hutchinson. Don Hutchinson was playing for Sunderland. He, someone must have told him that you've been nah. out. <laughs> no, you know. <laughs> you ping one from distance. <laughs> we were already 1-0 down, and uh, I only went out one Friday night ever before a game. I was like super, super professional. I wouldn't go out on a Thursday, was, yeah. you know what I mean? So you know the deal. And you can't be doing that all the time. But I figured, what are the chances? <laughs> well, Shaq comes off with a hamstring at halftime, and he's laying on the bench, and he's like, yeah, John, our physio, and he's like, I don't think I can continue. And I go up to his ear, and I, Shaq, you gotta, you gotta play, Betty. You gotta play. What? I can't. I can't. I go. No. I went out last night. I am fucking <laughs> dying here. You're a big man. I can't do it. Can't do it. Yeah. Let's get my gloves. Les Seeley. We went out oh. and warmed up a little bit, and then uh, Don Hutchison hit a free kick. Can't remember whether it went over the wall <laughs> or around it or whatever, but it bounced in front of me, and there was four balls, and I picked one. And it was the wrong one, and I just palmed it right in the top of the net. So you saved one of them. <laughs> yeah, I saved three of them. <laughs> we had we had a little incident, like yeah, I think it was in the first year or second year of TFC, where we had a player. It was actually Rowan Ricketts' best buddy on the team. Yo, I think it was Jovan Smith or Johan yeah, Smith. Johan Smith. Smith. So we were were playing, and he was about. He got called, summoned to to come on, 
So he's getting warmed up. The uh, uh, coach Mo has called him over, and he's warming, he's doing his last bits of stretches. He's still got his bib on his penny, and um, the referee's taking his number and everything, and he's doing the old stretch, the old Russian stretch, still ready to go on doing his little sprints. He takes his pity off and he runs half on and he's still got his training jersey on. <laughs> he hasn't even got his real jersey with his number and name on the back. <laughs> Came back off the field. Moe's lost his shit. He's gone, fuck off, get back. And he's thrown whoever. I don't know if it was Ronnie O'Brien or someone thrown back on, on the field. And Joe never, ever played again for really? us again. What, wasn't the story with, with him, you know, he kind of didn't put his time in and wasn't prepared to understand the hierarchy at the club. So yeah. a young guy breaking through, but you've got to earn those stripes a little bit. Well, you definitely got to wear the right jersey while coming on the field. Yeah, we, we, not we, your training so jersey, yeah. For being a sub, I mean, it's a, it's a different <laughs> world, right? I give, I give players credit who are actually impact subs because it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. We saw Rian Brewster this week in the, in the Shield come on the field, barely got a touch, and then he had to take a penalty in the shootout. And, and he missed it, obviously, and hit the bar. And Klopp apologized post-match, saying, I, you know, it's my fault. This kid hadn't got any kind of rhythm whatsoever. Then straight away taking a penalty. Um, uh, were, you, were you, as a striker, it's different, right? Because you need to get a rhythm. It's very difficult to come onto the field, I imagine, with 10, 15 minutes left and really do anything significant. Yeah, I, I remember at Sunderland as well that I, I was a sub a number of times because I was playing behind uh, Niall Quinn and, and Kevin Phillips, who were an unbelievable attacking yeah. twosome. So my my time on the field were was limited. And so I had to remind myself that whether it be 10 minutes, whether it be 20 minutes, whether it be 45 minutes, I had to make some kind of impact coming off the bench, whether it be where it go down, whether it be where it go up and I need to hold the ball up and take a little bit of pressure off the defenders. But I knew for that 10, 15 minutes, I wasn't just going to punch around. And not only would it be disrespect to the coaching staff and the rest of the team, but the fucking Sunderland fans would let you have it. If you weren't pulling your weight, whether you yeah. were coming on for five minutes, ten minutes, starting the game, they would let you have it as fans. Yeah, the difference between going on as a goalkeeper, which I would don't know the difference between coming on as a striker, but at least when you come on as an out player, you can run around and make yourself get warm a like Danny says, make, an, yeah. make an impact yeah. of some sort, make yourself visible. But a goalkeeper, you can't. And the the difficulty there is you, you warmed up at the start of the game. Say you come on, well, halftime you can do a little bit, but best thing is don't go out the night before. <laughs> right? For sure. And and then when you come on, say, after an hour, it's been two hours since you actually were in a warm-up just about. You've been sitting on the yeah, bench. It's tough for goalkeepers. And your eyes aren't ready for it either, right? Because Well, it's a depth perception. Yeah, and, you right. know, you're trying. I remember coming on, Shaka got sent off against Leeds. At home, and I got, and the first thing I faced was a penalty shot. I thought the ball was on the top of the six. I thought it was on the six so yard. Close, it was, yeah. looked so close. Yeah, had no idea. And I'm looking, and I'm like, wow, these like it was by me like a shot. It's interesting. It's some weird. coaches as well they they don't even call the players subs anymore. I know a coach that calls them impact players. So right. even in his presentation. Right. He says, these are the starting 11, these are the impact players. That's, That's a great way to look at it. And yeah. then another coach I know calls them game changers. There's, there's a documentary on Netflix mm. uh, about the New Zealand All Blacks, one prime, I think it is, and um, their subs 
were renowned as the best in the game because they would either close the game down or would get the try when needed. And yeah. they were world-renowned. And he called them something like that, impact players. I forget now, but he would take them aside before the big game and say, listen, guys, you're yeah. part of this. We yeah. are relying on you. You're going to close this game out. You're, yeah. you're and there's even us. those guys who are impact players, but they might not be good at that. Right. Like coming off the bench, some guys can do it. Some guys are better yeah. than others, right? Some yep. guys take time to settle in, and then you got a soul shot or something like that. He was just, he's yep. in the super rhythm. Sub. Soul super yeah, sub, right? He's one, isn't he? Soul shot, Nigel Fairclough. Yeah. Was really like big in the right away, don't miss a beat. Or, that, or is it more to the point that those guys, the, the Oles and the uh, Faircloughs, scored big goals we remember off the bench, so therefore they're considered super subs? Could be. Yeah, yeah. Could right, be as well, moments, for right? sure. But I think his record off the bench was very good. Yeah. Well, Fairclough was. One yeah. of the best, David yeah. Fairclough, yeah. at Liverpool. Yeah, little ginger. He was here actually a few years ago. I interviewed him. Was he fantastic? Yeah, great guy. Good man. Great guy. Um, we were almost out of time. As it stands, Neil Messi still at Barcelona. Now, having having digested this for a week or so, do you think he's staying, or do you think he's going to get his move? Hmm. I think he's going to move. I just got a feeling he's going to move, only because I just don't see Barcelona being competitive for the next few years, and he hasn't got a couple years. I wonder, you know what would be really good? I would love to see him at Juve with Ronaldo. Yeah. <laughs> what has been rumors of Not it, that but I'm a Juve fan, but I no. mean, to see those two together, I'd watch every game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you think... Serie A would be incredible, wouldn't it? Incredible. Do you think a team could accommodate those two? That's a question. Do you we think those two more. could play together? Yes, because Ronaldo can play anywhere. You, you hear rumors about Sané and right? Mane not, you know... Uh, you know, Salah and Mane not passing the ball to each other and being issues there. Can you imagine those two in the field? Can you imagine Ronaldo? He's going to set up Messi for an open goal? No chance. No, you know what? I think they would. I think it would be... It's like having two front men, though, of like the, the best band in the world, like Mick Jagger and who else? <laughs> Mick Jagger and who else? Roger Daltrey? Roger Daltrey. Hey, like, listen, Jagger and Bowie did sing together. Yeah, but they were also seeing each other as well. Ceiling. They had a relationship off the field as well. Yeah, they they did. But um, no, I just don't think it would work. I, I honestly, I've said it on one soccer as well. I, I don't see him moving. I think he wants to move, but there's so many... Well, there's that. Legal Legal things there. going on. And now Barcelona have got... Yeah. Um, they've got help from La Liga saying that La Liga have looked at the clause and Barcelona are in the right. It was meant to be done by 10th of yeah. June when he left on a free. So mm-hmm. he's not going to be le- uh, allowed to leave for free. It's going to be a f- whopping 464 million yeah. transfer fees. Yeah, so yeah but th- those release clauses, I mean, they can be negotiated, right? I, I, not I, for Lionel Messi. He's not, but no, one, <laughs> but no, one's, Dicchio, no one's paying yes. 700 million euros for... But James Sharman, yes. Messi says, you know what? If you want to play that game, I'm not... I, I'm just going to, I'm not. He could sit out for a year and then get the clause. Yeah. So does Messi do that at Barcelona? I think if it, I think a club he I loves. I just have the impression now he that he is so pissed off with system. the brass mm. there. Unless they call early elections, he hates that hierarchy yeah, at the moment. It's a hierarchy. He doesn't he'll hate the club. I think in the end, they're going to negotiate. They're going to realize he's leaving. It's a time for us to move forward and we'll negotiate with City and we'll get a fee. Yep. It won't be 700 million, but it'll be a substantial fee. So you can pay 100. And then. I, I mean, I don't want it to happen. I, I think you're right. I hope you're right that he stays there. That's just the make a second. Yeah. The player's made his mind up. I just think that's the sentiment I get. Yeah. I, I, th- I, honestly, I agree with you. I think he's already in the mindset that he's gone. He hasn't turned up for a coronavirus test on Sunday. Maybe he's got it. And that's Didn't why. turn up on Monday for the start of training. But, but Suarez did, which is odd. Yeah. And he's apparently he's got like a 15 million 
release fee that but they has to be paid but by the reports Barcelona. Were they, oh yeah, reports were that he's going to leave though. Like he's been told he's, he's been told leave. to leave. Yeah. yeah. But so there's a 15 million on his head contract that oh, Barcelona have to, have to pay him if he doesn't leave. Oh, I if see. he leaves, if he leaves before oh. his contract expires. Yeah. Ah, that's so interesting. So there's all kind of discrepancies that are going on there. I think there's a lot of rumor mongering going on. Kuman has walked into an absolute shit show. <laughs> let me tell you that now, because. You now look at Messi wants to leave. Vidal has come out and said that it's a disgrace what the club are doing to Messi. Who in their right mind, and this is Barcelona we're talking about right now, who in their right mind will want to go and sign for Barcelona? <laughs> like if you're a top, top player yeah. and yep. they're saying... Because everybody's looking to win. Yeah. They're not gonna and you're replacing there. potentially... Lionel exactly. Messi, who's yeah. the most famous player to ever yeah. have really, that. Really. There's no win situation. This could be a, long good rebuild. Time, a really good time for Real Madrid, but also for the two or three like yeah. Sevilla, Valencia, teams that are starting to get a little bit closer to maybe try and get in that mix for the championship. People forget that there was a time before Leo Messi when Barcelona was wasn't winning every year. There yeah. was. Believe it or not, he wasn't there forever. And, and you know, there's the Louis van Gaal era where they were decent, but they, they, they you know, didn't win everything. The Maradona era. Yep. Yeah, right. So I mean, it's not like they're they're entitled to be a, a championship winner every single year. They're so used to it though. They're used to it now, but I don't know. We, we, I don't know. It's Liverpool were used to it. Settle it soon. In the eighties, weren't we, they? We, we sure were. Yeah, that soon changed. See? But that's these things are cyclical, right? United. Yeah. Right? Suddenly so they stopped winning. Sorry, you're not entitled to it, you know. Um but yeah, we, we'll see. But I just have that impression that he's leaving and if it's Man City next podcast maybe we'll talk about, you know, do they actually need him? Which sounds crazy, yeah. but they're the highest scoring team in England. Somebody they don't saying, need attacking players, really. Was saying, hey, we we might see him if Stoke get promoted, and he ends at Man City. He might end up at Stoke on Imagine a wet, a cold, winter of windy day. Can he do it on a yeah. cold, wet, yeah. rainy night in Stoke? Five goals today. It's interesting, Jason, talking about that about black players because that yeah. was the stereotype. It's true, cold, can't handle it, didn't like it. <laughs> Quarterbacks, yeah, yeah. no, no yeah. quarterback could play. What was it? Doug like, Williams wins, and now, geez. I mean, it still took a while. Yeah. But they couldn't play in, like, down. Green Bay. Yeah, the last five years. Yeah, every white quarterback. Yeah, geez. Now, like, come on. And they all had to be six foot four. And yeah. It was and a whole white. thing. Then yeah. Patrick Mahomes comes along, who's he's not six foot four, no. and he's black, and he's absolutely dominating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, all nonsense, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Jason Roberts was fantastic, by the way. Very Amazing. Good. Didn't but, know you had such nice friends, Dave. Yeah, no, you no. know what? Usually I just see us four together. And smart. And like, Jesus, and smart. we're losers. Yeah. <laughs> I think he has got a smart friend. <laughs> but, Lo, yeah, like we, we touched on it a little bit, but I'm, I'm so proud of him and what he's done because when you see where Jay grew up, is the projects. It's a bad, bad neighborhood, bad council estate in northwest London, Stonebridge, and that just goes to show it, it, you can't really categorize like people that live in certain areas or on certain welfare, certain, you know, it, it just baffles me when people make assumptions of certain people, race or color, or whether they're from a, 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 a rich family, poor family, it's down to the person and how they're brought up and you give a lot of credit to his close family. And as I said, I'm so proud of, where he's come from, his career. He, he started late as well. He got a couple of knockbacks early on in his career. Mm. Went through Hayes, non-league, as he said. Um, had to bounce around a couple of teams before getting into the Premier League, where he's, he's 
uncle was such a fantastic player. His, his other uncle, John Regis, is a very, very good athlete as well. Sprinter, legend. Good sprinter. And now he's in such a, a fantastic job with a, a, a role that is very important. So a lot of credit to, to him. Absolutely. All right. We're, uh, it's a long show today, isn't it? Well, we have a couple cuts to make, so it won't be too bad. But it's nice <laughs> to see Craig's uh, lunch kit back. Yep. Back. We of, missed it, of, Greg. We really missed it. Yeah, we did. And uh, Brendan, <laughs> Brendan was great last week, but... But it's a tiny lunch kit. He, and he's got way more, <laughs> hair than, way more hair than you. He's like Grizzly Adams Who now. Who doesn't? On his face. On his face. And I was just wondering one more thing was... Like how much do you have a couple soup cans for a transfer now for you guys? Like how much <laughs> how much would it be? It would be it's like much. a case of KD. We would have to give them. That's oh, well, to, that's it. To another You're driving the Uber. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> to, yeah. Mean, to another oh, podcast. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm. What your wealth goes sort of as you're playing, it goes up and up and up, and then you hit sort of late twenties and it starts going down. And then it's pretty, incredible. Pretty soon you're Two full events of them beer should do. Well, pretty soon you're paying. I think pretty soon you're paying to if you want. Um, yeah, I imagine if, like, these guys would be okay, though, if they're being moved to another podcast, you know, like a, a good one, like in England or something. You know, they've got enough uh, name value. I, I'd be screwed. They'd be all right, though. Well, we just got some of the, the rankings for uh, Chartable. Let me just see these things, so it's kind of funny. What's first? Is it Football Weekly? No, it's, uh, we're, but I, I doesn't say all the stuff, but it says we were 127 in Spain for podcasts. <laughs> oh, wow. For podcasts. Oh. Look at that. And 213 in Denmark. Fellas. Really? Yeah. And we're moving up. I know we, I, we've talked about we have peaked at number one in Canada, but um, we're number 17 all time over since podcasts and soccer in Canada have started. We're number 17. We've moved up seven places. Is since, that like cumulative? Uh, or cumulative. Like all time listeners All time. Combined? We've only been going for really? less than a year. So we're moving up the ranks and we'll keep telling people how great we are. Yeah. yeah. So down to you, Dan, our producer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Because yeah. I because I have a space to put where no one else has. <laughs> you know what? Joe Rogan started his podcast in his house. Well, so look at him. Hundred million dollar deal. That's with Spotify. right. We're going to be putting yeah. together some deals. So Spotify, listen. If you are listening, you know we'll do it for a fraction of that. That's right. A fraction of a hundred million. Yeah. Hundred million lira. Three hundred. The three hundred million have started a podcast. Okay. In basement we'll get too. paid in bags of milk. <laughs> very very healthy. All right. Well, listen. Thanks to um, DeanBlundell.com, Amsterdam. Beer, brewery, all that good stuff. Um, Wonga, thank you. JC, haven't heard the opener yet because you, you recorded it after this, right? Is that a plan? <laughs> yeah. That's our, That's the plan. hope it's really good. So <laughs> thanks, JC. Deech, Craig, thank you. Everyone, thank you for listening. Gracias. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Appreciate it. We'll be back at some point, maybe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.